Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clear Path Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, We're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned and thanks for joining. Thank you, my friend. I'm excited for our family meeting today, so I'm going to try to keep my message relatively short, too, because I know that we're going to talk in that meeting, too. But, um, you know, I, uh, I walked in the restroom earlier and looked in the mirror. And I had two thoughts that immediately came to my mind, maybe because my brain likes to jump around a lot. The first was, Zane, you're wearing a hat with a Boston Terrier wearing headphones. And some people, instead of listening to you, are going to be wondering why you're wearing that. So I'm going to tell you what this hat is right now so you don't have to wonder. Okay? This is a band called Snarky Puppy. They're one of my favorite bands. If you're a boring person and you need some more to shake up your music a little bit, and put some jazz in, some world music. This is a good intro for you. Look up the band Snarky Puppy. Now none of you will wonder what my hat is. Second of all, I, um, I had to repent for a second. And I'm going to repent publicly, which is that in finishing this message, I forgot about something I was going to do. Um, I spent a lot of time studying scripture this week. But earlier this week, um, there's a... There's a gas station right up here at 30 and Northwest Highway. And, and whenever we were there, uh, I, I pulled over there with the family. And there was a guy standing out there who, who lives in the field next to it in a tent. And, and I guess they let him have some work there, kind of keeping the property cleaned up. His name was John. And we talked for a while. And John was a really cool guy. And uh, I invited John to come to church today. And he told me that he would probably try to be here. But I was like, I, I made a note to self. I was like, I'm going to come by and try to pick John up. And when I looked in the mirror, I heard the scripture in my head. Go to the highways and byways. Literally, it's the highways and byways. Go to the highways and byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And sometimes we get so busy doing stuff that we feel like we're supposed to be doing, like writing a sermon, that we forget about John. And... Um, so I'm sorry that I didn't go get John, and, uh, or, at least, or at least go see if you wanted to ride. And next Sunday, I'm going to go see if John wants a ride. Hopefully, he'll come with me. So um, none of that had anything to do with this message. Today, we begin a series covering the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first series or sorry, the first sermon of Jesus captured in the book of Matthew. And it might be my personal favorite collection of scripture. This sermon, you know a lot of it. It famously covers the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer, among plenty of other really well-known verses. But this is just way more than a well-known speech. So the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know, covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it may be more than anything about the disposition of our hearts. 
I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, actually, even Andrea came up and read the scripture during, uh, during worship today from James, and it talked about how faith without works is dead. And the Sermon on the Mount seems to speak into that a lot. If you're familiar with the Beatitudes, or if you're familiar with Jesus' different list of commands or teachings, um, they do address how we behave. And then, but they go even deeper and beyond the ways that we behave they dig into the dispositions of our hearts. They, dis, they, they dig into how you think and how you feel and the things that, that come out of you, right? Not the things that you decided to do, but the things that just come out of you. Jesus' sermon points to our, our faulty assumptions of what a good life looks like. It challenges our motives. It teaches us about anger, lust, divorce, Enemies, humility, it teaches us how to deal with our anxiety. It instructs us on how to treat others, how to approach God, things that we might pray about, and it warns us about the obstacles in life that are likely to trip us up. It's an, it's an incredible sermon. I've never heard or read a better one. If you could live the Sermon on the Mount, you would be the very embodiment of God in human form. But you, you aren't. But Jesus did live this sermon. And this series will be a call to have the disposition of your heart changed so that you can live in his likeness. None of us can ever come close to living out the words that we will study together throughout this series by our own willpower. It is impossible. These teachings are deeply cutting and they're requiring control of your thoughts, your emotions, your motivations, your intentions. That's harder than just what you do, right? It's so deep that it's impossible for us to form the way of Jesus in our own souls. So it must be chiseled onto our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of the new covenant. No longer will God write his words on tablets of stone, but he will chisel them into your hearts. So Jordan and I are going um, to, I'll be teaching on the Sermon on the Mount on and off um, in between Jordan's series that he's doing, Holy. And I think that they'll work very well together. They're, they're really very intertwined in subject matter. And at first, I was planning to teach three or four weeks on these chapters. But as I poured hours and hours into the words uh, in these three chapters of Scripture, I told Jordan, I was like, man, somebody could preach on these words every Sunday for a lifetime and never run out of something, something valuable to say. And so Jordan was like, hey, just, you know, don't feel like you have to rush it. And so I looked, and there are 111 verses in Jesus' sermon so I'm taking his advice, and today I will preach one verse. <laughs> At this rate, it should only take us 110 more weeks to finish this series. Woo! So that's exciting. But really, today, I'm going to teach in depth on one verse. And you only have to remember one word for this week's sermon title. Salt. Salt. Salt.
before we start reading the scripture, let's get a little context. I don't like to just start reading scripture without knowing why or what's happening. We need to know where we are in the story. And this is right at the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized by John, John the Baptist, at which time the spirit descends on him like a dove. And the father verbally expresses his approval to Jesus. Pretty awesome moment to start with. Then the spirit leads Jesus to a time of fasting and to being tempted in the wilderness. So we have these two really monumental events. And finally, Jesus is now ready to share the message that he has waited 30 years to preach. Here's the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's do a really quick word study. I'm not some big original language guy, but I've tried to learn some. Repent. It means, it actually means, it, all these words have a couple definitions you could use, but one of the definitions for repent is start to think differently. For the kingdom, what's a kingdom? A kingdom is a territory subject to rule of a king. Right? That's all it is. It's defining a territory that's subject to the rule of a king. For the kingdom of heaven, heaven. Heaven is the realm where God and his heavenly beings dwell. Has come near. Okay, and this, this word for come near, actually I really like it. It actually often can mean to join one thing to another. It's not just proximity. It's actually that it can get so close that it could come so near that one thing becomes joined to the, to the other. And so if you don't understand that this is Jesus' main message that he's come to preach, then you will miss the point behind the whole Sermon on the Mount. The sermon isn't about behavior reform, so much as it is an invitation to a new way of living and a new way of thinking. That's the message. Repent. Change how you think. We think of repenting as, you know, I'm going I'm to stop doing this behavior. I'm going to agree to quit doing this certain sin. And it is. But it goes deeper still. He says, don't even think that way anymore. Why? Because... The realm where God lives and rules was once separated from the earth, but now it isn't. It was once far away, but now you can simply receive access to this kingdom. And, and here's why Jesus walked around calling it good news. We have this word gospel, right? Let me tell you the good news. The good news is that because the kingdom is here, if you now enter into this realm where God is, it will change every single part of you, even the way you think, even the thoughts and intentions and meditations of your heart. You follow me? Yeah. Let's pray before we really dig into this text. God, I pray that you would open our hearts. Once again, God, open our hearts. God, I don't want to just seem like a better person. I don't want to just 
do what I've done many times and muster enough energy to change my behavior for a little while. God, I want you to change every part of me, every, every place deep within me that doesn't look like you. Every place where your kingdom is not intertwined in my soul. God, once again, I, I invite you to come and take those places in me. And for each person in this room that's willing, God, take those places in us, clear them out, and fill them fresh with your spirit so that we could change the very core of who we are. In Jesus' name. So the story continues. Jesus calls the first group of disciples to follow him. And he travels through Galilee, proclaiming this good news of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. He is healing and delivering all who come to him. He's been followed by a large crowd. And so finally, maybe he's tired. I don't know why he does what he does at this exact moment, but he's human. Sometimes I just wonder, like, we're thinking, like, you know, why did Jesus do that? I'm like, I mean, maybe he was tired, you know? He's been walking around Galilee. So Jesus sits down on the side of a big hill, a place where everyone can see him. And he begins to teach his, his new disciples along with the crowd. He starts by teaching what we now call the Beatitudes. Raise your hand if you have some familiarity with the Beatitudes. Most of us have heard them or prayed them at noontime prayer, hint, hint, come to noontime prayer. If, if you're going to teach the Sermon on the Mount, any theologian worth his salt would likely start by explaining these mind-blowing pieces of wisdom to you. But I am a better listener than I am a theologian, so I'm going to start where the Holy Spirit told me to start, with salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Matthew 5.13. Salt. I literally got stuck on these seven words for maybe three or four hours. You are the salt of the earth. What does it mean to be salt of the earth? Jesus finds it valuable enough to mention right at the beginning of his speech that he's been waiting 30 years to make. But in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't explain it. I guess it's probably one of those situations where Jesus says something like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I am going to share a pile of thoughts on salt with you. And I hope that you will have one takeaway that's outside of anything that I'm going to say for the rest of this message, outside of this content. God's word will come alive to you if you read it with the spirit and you have permission to take your time and get lost for hours in just one verse. Sometimes read scripture fast, understand the story, but sometimes Read scripture really, really slow because there's a lot that we're missing. 
What do we know about salt? Well, all accurate. The first thing that most of us would think about is taste, right? But the first thing the listeners in Jesus' day would have thought of, as Toby mentioned, and maybe a couple others, is preservation. Most of you already know that salt is an incredible preservative used to make food, especially meat, last for a long time. Meat that's been preserved in certain ways using salt can actually stay good for years, even at just room temperature. Because they didn't have refrigerators or freezers or electricity or most other things that we have, salt was one of the most important things that a family could buy. It was a really big deal. In fact, it was so important that Roman soldiers sometimes got paid in salt instead of money. And they actually called it a, a salarium. Sal, S-A-L, means salt, a salarium. It was such a necessity that it was used as a valuable currency. And the English word, as maybe some of you are already picking up, salary, can be traced back to this word, salt money. This is also where we get the phrase that I used earlier, any man worth his salt, which was used to describe a good worker. Salt was a big deal. Salt was such a central ingredient to the functioning of society that it had taken on a deeper meaning over the years. It wasn't only used to preserve food, but it was symbolically used to preserve covenants or commitments between people. This would go beyond what we say is like a handshake agreement or what kids might view as a pinky promise. It was serious. A salt covenant was like signing a notarized contract. They would have witnesses present and they would eat salt together in order that their promise or agreement would be preserved or guaranteed. Now this idea didn't originate in social or business settings. It actually came from the Old Testament. If you read the books of Le Leviticus and Numbers, who loves the reading Leviticus and Numbers? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. If you read those books, you will find that God required the people to put salt on their sacrifices as a way to mark their commitment to God. And it seems that this was also a way for God to show the preservation of his promise to the priests. See, God called this a salt covenant because the priests could not own land. God provided their food by allowing them to eat the food others gave as a sacrifice to God. And it would have been kept fresh by the addition of salt. So with these salt, with these salts, salty sacrifices, God is having both the people preserve their covenant to God and God himself is preserving his covenant to the Levites. All right, so for starters, that's a lot of rambling about salt. And no, I'm nowhere done talking about salt. But what's the point so far? Well, I wonder if when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, if he might be saying that we are those who preserve his promises. Those who keep his promises in our own lives so that his glory can be on display. Those who talk about and display his words to keep them alive from person to person and from generation to generation. You are the salt of the earth. 
See, if we hold God's truth in our hearts, then it begins to change us, right? It's, this, it's the spirit. This is not law. This is spirit. It's an invitation to a new kingdom. The spirit comes into us and he begins to change us. He begins to, to change even the very, the very dispositions of our hearts. And when we each carry his spirit, we pass it to our children. We pass it to each other. We pass it to new followers of Jesus. And it always stays fresh, never growing dull. That's good. Jesus is saying that when you enter this new kingdom, he's inviting you. When you enter this new kingdom, you actually have it in you to never grow tired of doing good. To never lose the consistency of your faith to see miracles. You will be steady because you're salt. You're able to preserve his covenants. Everyone say that word with me. Preservation. Preservation. This is the first thing that I want you to remember about salt. Preservation. Now for a second detail about salt. Everybody say... Planting healthy crops. Planting healthy crops. Doesn't seem related, does it? Salt was commonly used as a fertilizer to prepare land for growing crops. Studies were actually done in Chicago in the 1940s and 50s to test whether sea salt was actually a quality fertilizer. And we're looking at sea salt in particular I'm looking at a study on sea salt because the way the Hebrew people would get their salt was by pouring seawater into a pit and letting the water eventually evaporate, leaving only the salt. So all these studies in Chicago proved as a fact that by adding sea salt as fertilizer to the soil, it not only increased plant growth and improved yield, okay, plants grew better and more, but also resulted in healthier, more nutritious plants with greater resistance to pests and diseases. That's what the study said. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Not only will your life show the, preserva the preservation of God's promises, but you will prepare the ground to produce a good, healthy harvest. By the way that we live and speak, we fertilize the ground to grow a good, a good crop and to produce a good harvest for the kingdom. Fruitfulness is increased if you are salty. And not only will growth be healthy in those around you, but it will be more resistant to both pests and diseases. That line really caught my attention. It, it's... These crops, when treated with salt, are more resistant to pests and diseases. You know, I've lived life long enough to know that the problems that infiltrate our lives come from multiple sources. Everyone a lot of times wants to simplify it. What's this person's problem? Well, it's usually not that easy. It normally comes from multiple sources. Some of them come because we live in a broken world. Some come because there are actually evil spirits. Some problems come because broken people hurt us. Some are from unhealthy ways of thinking that creep in. And we could continue making a list, right? But this idea of being salt, 
says that when you enter this new kingdom, those things have a harder time affecting you. And those things have a harder time affecting the people that you're sharing your life with. Because whenever you're salty, it makes it difficult for both pests and diseases to latch on. It's pretty cool, right? Jesus is a pretty brilliant scientist. I heard someone actually this, just this week, I think it might have been Dallas Willard, I heard somebody making a, a point that um, Jesus was the smartest man to have ever lived. And I don't know if I ever thought about that. Like, I don't, I don't know if I ever considered, you know, I don't know if Jesus literally had the highest brain capacity or IQ of any person that ever lived, but he made this point. I was like, it's an interesting point. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I mean, I'm, we'll leave that for another time. <laughs> What I do know is that Jesus is a brilliant scientist. He might remember creating salt before the days before Adam and Eve and thinking, hey, this is going to make a pretty awesome speech one day. <laughs> you know what? Maybe I'll make it just one sentence and see if they can figure it out. Hey, Dad, what do you think? And God responds something like, sounds good, son, but you better make it taste good or no one will care. It's just my imagination of how this conversation went. And it does taste good, right? Everybody say, pretty tasty. <laughs> that phrase was all I could come up with to make it start with a P. And the first two points already started with a P, so it seemed like the right thing to do. So you have salt. It's for preservation, planting healthy crops, and it's pretty tasty. <laughs> I remember when Tiffany got more into cooking years ago, and, and she started buying specific salts. I don't know if any of you have had this, this realization, but I remember when she got the first like fancy box of salt, it actually blew me away. Like, I, the first time I started tasting on food, I was like, something's different about this. And she's like, it's better salt. And I was like, oh my goodness. So like, dude, I started throwing this fancy salt on everything. <laughs> I was like salt bay. Y'all seen that guy? I'm just walking around the kitchen, just whatever it lands on, I'm eating. I mean, I really was impressed though, because, because this, this better salt made everything taste so good. Actually, when I mentioned to Tiffany that I was preaching on salt today, she said, yeah, it brings out the good flavor in foods that are already present, but harder to notice. And I said, really? And she said, yes, you didn't know that? And I said, no, how does it work scientifically? And she said, I have no idea. Why would you ask me that? <laughs> so... I looked it up on the interwebs to find out if my wife was a liar or not. And it turns out, babe, I picked a good one. Here's what the internet says. Use of salt decreases water activity, which can lead to an effective increase in the concentration of flavors 
and improve the volatility of flavor components. Higher volatility of flavor components improves the aroma of food and contributes greatly to flavor. I even left the reference in there in case you guys want to go do a little, little more salt research. <laughs> Y'all are, are never going to want to hear about salt again after today. So probably no one's going to do that. Being salt in the world is a lot like when Jordan says that when you go to lost people, you need to look for the places in their life that God is already at work. There's already some good flavor happening in them. It even smells better than your nose has yet recognized. But they might not even know it's there. And they definitely might not recognize where it came from. But we're told, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As people encounter you, they should be able to see God's promises at work in your life and they should recognize God at work in their own life because you are salt and you pull that flavor and aroma right out of them. Good. You tracking with me? Good. Proverbs 25 says it like this. I put two different translations up for you. Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Or... Though good advice lies deep within the heart, a person with understanding will draw it out. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Have you ever had a friend who needed some good advice, but they just wouldn't listen? Anybody? Raise your hand. Come on. I need participation. I need edification or I'm going to quit preaching. People are stubborn. And people who have troublesome lives usually didn't get there only by bad luck. I'm not saying there's no ba bad luck involved. I often look at people's lives and think, man, you're in a tough spot, and maybe I would be there too if I had come from your circumstances. But they usually have also exercised some poor decision-making. And now you are thinking, hey, why won't you just let me help you? I can fix you if you actually just do everything I say. But they are probably still the same bad decision maker that they were before you said that sentence. And there's an old saying that says, a man convinced against his will is, anyone know it? Is of the same opinion still. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That has proven very true in my experience. But what if we're saltier than that? Paul encourages the Colossians to let their speech be seasoned with salt. What if God is asking you to be a person of understanding? We just read that proverb. To look for the wisdom that's already hidden yet unaccessible to the person. I guarantee you that God was already speaking to this person and planning long before you came up with a great idea to fix their life. And listen, I'm not being harsh with you. I'm very guilty of this. I always like, like, oh, I can see what this person needs to do. I can fix their whole life myself right now. <laughs> Never has worked. 
God is already speaking and planning, even in the people who are most unaware of it. So make your speech pleasant and make it palatable. And let God, deep within that person, be the counselor. Because he is a better counselor than we are. See, being salt is an extension of the Beatitudes. And I'm not teaching on the Beatitudes this week. I'm going to have to backtrack sometime when God tells me to and go teach on the Beatitudes. We didn't study those yet, but here's a quick teaser. If we show mercy to people, if we make peace in difficult situations, if we interact with the world from a place of humility, with no hint of wanting to control or manipulate people, they will taste and see that the promises of God are not just theoretical, but they lead to a life that is desirable. The change in us, the change in you, proves the power of God's grace for them to see. All right, that's a lot of understanding for seven words. You are the salt of the earth. That's what we've covered. Good job, guys. We've only talked about one-third of one out of 111 verses. And look at all the thoughts that God brought out. We're going to do the last two-thirds of this verse very quickly. Let's read it again. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. If salt isn't salty, it's useless. Complete trash. But this statement confused me because my first thought was, I didn't think salt could even go bad. So I researched to confirm because I didn't want to be stupid and come tell you something completely inaccurate. But I was correct. Thankfully, salt does not ever go bad over time. It never loses its composition or taste. It's extremely stable. One of the most stable things in existence. It does not lose its saltiness unless it's mixed with another substance. That's the only way for salt to lose its saltiness is when you mix it with another substance. Do not let the kingdom of light in you be mixed with the kingdom of this world. You've been invited to a new kingdom and a new way of thinking. If you cling to the old way of thinking, the mixture will not stay a mixture. Do you know the difference between a mixture and a solution? Mixture, mixture isn't possible with salt. Well, it is maybe possible with some ingredients, but in this case, just ignore my bad scientific statement. Mixture is possible, but in this case, Jesus is saying that it's not. You've been invited to a new way of thinking. The world is like water, and the effectiveness of your life will dissolve when mixed with the world. You can't be part salty. You will either be fully salty or even the smallest bit of water allowed into the cup will dissolve you, right? You've watched it happen. This is what Jesus is telling us. 
Do not give in to the temptation to take part of each kingdom. In fact, let's look at one more moment where Jesus uses the same analogy. I didn't get the scripture on the screen, but you all have to listen. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Oh, look at that. They, they did it for me. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. See, he says, he gives the same analogy in a different place. And it makes it more clear when we look at both examples. Jesus is telling you to count the cost carefully. If there's any person, desire, reputation, or possession that you are not willing to give up for the kingdom of God, you will lose your saltiness. God is asking for a complete change of the depths of who you are, a complete change of your disposition, a complete change of your natural way of thinking. You are no longer your own. So whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You are called to preserve the promises of God. Yes. You're called to prepare a healthy crop. Yes. And you're called to bring out the beautiful taste that's hidden in every person around you. Yes. So it's your choice. Will you be salty? Or will you let the new kingdom inside you become diluted? You guys stand with me? I want to pray over you. God, I just ask you to help us receive this new kingdom that you brought. God, in any way that we're still trying to mix in the kingdom of the earth and combine it with your kingdom and find a happy, comfortable place to live, God, maybe we realize that's not a real possibility. Your call was to repent. Your call was to change the way that we think. So, God, we just receive right now. God, we say, let your kingdom come in us. We know that it's near. We know that your kingdom is right here. 
So right now we receive it afresh. And we say, God, make us salty. Let us become salt. Let us be those who don't forget about your promises. Let us be those who are not distracted, but let us constantly taste and see that you're good. Everywhere we go, in every place, in every person, God, let us taste and see that you're good. If you want God to change you in a deeper place, I'm just going to invite you for a minute. I'm not even going to say anything. We're just going to be quiet, but just lift your hands as a sign to him. God, change me in the depths of who I am. So together, let's repent because the kingdom of God is near. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at Clearpath Dallas. Thanks for listening.